Well, good morning. Yeah, it was really lame. You want a second take at that? Good morning. There we go. That's better. So um, what a blessing. I mean, uh, having been here already two services and then just seeing the way that you guys love each other and uh, the way you treat your pastors. Can I fill out an application? Is there... I want to... This is such a blessing to be here, and uh, even just to see how the Lord has uh, encouraged and grown and deepened you in the time since I've been here last, it's, it's always a joy uh, to be here with you. I know you love God's word. I know that this is a place that takes seriously what God says, so I'm eager to do that. Thanks for having me. Uh, can I ask you a question? Um, you ever been stuck? I mean, like, stuck, stuck, like, really, really, really stuck uh, a couple of years ago, I was um, on my way from the States to India to pick up some missionaries, and we were bringing them home, and, and um, as we were in the air from JFK to Mumbai, uh, something was happening on the ground in India that we weren't quite prepared for. Uh, when we got there, we realized that there was a quite a bit of upheaval and unrest in the community. Uh, there was a man named Bal Thackeray. I remember that because of the stir that he created uh, by his passing. He was just beginning to die. And the guy was a political satirist whose career started as a cartoonist who moved his way through that medium into the hearts of people where he literally became the the progenitor of an ethnic cleansing movement that actually wiped out non-Hindus from large sweeping sections of the population in India. If you weren't a Hindu, if you were a Muslim, if you were a Christian or you were anything else, you had a target on your back because of this man's influence. Uh, His heroes, self-professed, were Hitler and Stalin, and by the time he had reached the end of his life, he had effectively become the Hitler of India. Some of the worst persecuted parts of the country of India, uh, reported by the voice of the martyrs, were a direct result of his hate and his influence. And he was dying. And the news spread quickly while we were on our way to land in Mumbai, who only a couple of years before had undergone a massive terrorist attack, uh, looking for people that are tall and fair-skinned like me. And and so I was already on edge coming, but the news of this was very unsettling. So we get on the ground and we're realizing there's riots in the streets, businesses are closing, whole states are closing. Could you imagine that the state of Arizona actually closed because some guy was dying? People were setting themselves on fire for this guy. I'm like, what in the world? And so, and and as a result of that, there were riots all over the country. And in our concentrated population, they were around the airport and they were beginning to encroach to the airport. The crew that was designed to take us from Mumbai to Goa was actually injured in the riot outside the airport trying to get in, so they had to be taken in medical emergency to the hospital. So we had no crew to fly our plane. Twelve hours later, I'm still in the airport looking at the duty-free area going, hmm, you know, maybe we should just all chill out and go in there, because there was a riot beginning to erupt inside the airport. News was spreading that the state was closing, the country was closing, the airport was closing with no definite date for reopening. So the flight that we wanted to be on to get us out of the chaos was canceled. 
And so riots actually began in the airport, screaming, yelling to the degree that military uniformed officers came in with machine guns and they had these clips. The clips were, um, to show they meant business, they were invisible clips that had bullets you could see this long on the inside of them. And I'm thinking, I had just watched one of the Jason Bourne movies, right? So I'm like, I'm like, I'm ready. You know, where's the fire extinguisher? I'm going to do this. And actually I was thinking I could hide in there, you know, and it was, it was chaos. And so finally, there was one flight that they were going to let go out, but they absolutely had to close the airport because the Indian Air Force was doing its afternoon training exercises, and we couldn't encroach or violate their airspace. And so we happened to be the flight that was picked uh, to go. And so we get on the flight, and we're sitting there in, in the plane, and all of a sudden now there became a riot in the airport of who is actually going to get to take this crew, because this was the only crew. And of course, they wanted to go, go to Goa because Goa is like Hawaii. Everybody wants to get out of the crazy and go there. And so our crew was actually pulled off the flight, and half the people in the flight get off onto the ground, and now there's a riot forming with, I'm not kidding, with the ground crew as the other half of the people on the flight stayed on the plane refusing to get off. And I brought those Bose noise-canceling headphones, you know, and I just went, click, and I threw on a Christopher Parkin instrumental CD, and I just laid my head back, and I told my friend, wake me if it gets interesting. Now, it was already interesting, but I'd had 16 hours of adrenaline drain, and I was wiped. But finally, we found a crew, finally found someone who was willing to take us on the last flight out of Mumbai, the last flight in the country that day, and even that week, to get us to our destination. And as I'm sitting there going, okay, this is a real thing, I asked myself, how in the world did I get here? And I thought, if they kill me, nobody's going to find me. I have no idea where my body's going to end up. This thing is real, but I found myself, what was I? I was, I was stuck. I was really, really stuck. The same thing's true in the spiritual realm. Sometimes we get stuck. Sometimes we get really stuck. Sometimes we start asking ourselves the question, how did I get here? I never envisioned this for myself. I never thought I could actually end up in this spot, and I have no idea how to get out of it. It's scary, it's lonely, and you feel incredibly helpless. Well, the good news this morning is from the word of God, we have one who gets us unstuck. His name is Jesus, and I want you to look at a life, uh, an episode in his life in Matthew chapter 4. So if you have your copy of God's word, go with me to Matthew chapter 4. I want to help us get unstuck, and specifically get us unstuck from temptation, as we're moving to Matthew chapter 4, maybe we should define our terms a little bit. When we say temptation, we're talking about that intense pressure that's on us to sin. There's an intense pull in our hearts, and there's an intense push on our hearts in the form of pressure to sin against the God that we love. And temptation really does come in, in two main forms. Uh, there's the painful sort of pressure where there's this, this deep burden on us to actually do something outside of the will of God that we feel like we can't hold off anymore. But then there's also that pleasing kind of pressure where we're enticed and pulled into something that our souls were not made for. Both of them come at Jesus from his arch enemy, the devil himself, whose story begins here in Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 1. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. 
and the tempter came. Just stop there for a second. Let's, let's land here solid because we've parachuted into, into Matthew's gospel here in chapter four. Jesus himself has just begun his ministry. Back in chapter three, he's undergone the baptism. He stood before John the Baptist who said, no, 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 you should be doing this to me, not me to you. But Jesus, whose life was and now ministry would be a fulfillment of all righteousness, stands as the spirit of God descends on him to anoint him for ministry to send him out as the king presented to Israel and the savior of the world. And the voice of the father can be heard. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The very next moment, then, after that, it says that he was taken, led up, literally by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, I've been to this spot. I've seen this spot. This is, a, this is a horrific place. It's the ideal place if you want to leave someone barren, lonely, isolated, and vulnerable. It is a spot that's nicknamed the devastation. It's a wasteland. There is nothing there. The only thing that could be there apart from Jesus and Satan, Mark tells us in Mark 1.13, is wild, evil beasts. This is the exact opposite of the scenario where the first Adam fell. In paradise, surrounded by everything. Now the second Adam is in the wasteland, and the same enemy that took down Adam and Eve is now squaring off against the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we find in the Lord Jesus Christ is that he is undefeatable. He is the one who, as he begins his ministry, stands with clear proof that he is the unassailable king. And that really is Matthew's point. Matthew is trying in all the stories he picks and all the sermons that he sets up to show us that Jesus is the one and only, we sang about it earlier, the one and only king who alone stands worthy, who alone by his conquering of the current reigning monarch, the God of this world, is deposed in Matthew chapter 4 as soon as Jesus' ministry begins. And this is a familiar foe. This is the devil. This is the one who from the very beginning wanted to shuffle his scalp underneath God's crown to wear it. He's the one that wanted to unseat God. He's the one that inspired demons and men to fall away. He's the one that brought sin into the universe and all of its consequences with it. And the word devil here, he's described in verse three as the tempter, that's true. His name also means slanderer. It means adversary. This is the arch enemy of God who is longed for this moment and for the first time now, has had access to Jesus without any restraints. Jesus, who is weak after 40 days and 40 nights of no food and nothing to drink, who is weak and vulnerable. Satan has not had access to Jesus like this before. And I should tell you, and I think you understand this, that in 1 Corinthians 10, it tells us that, that our temptations are limited. The things that we experience when Satan wants to come against us, those things have a, a limitation on them so that Satan can't do all the things to us that he would like to do because God knows how frail we are. He knows how fallen we are. Well, there is no restraint now on Satan as he comes at Jesus. And Jesus himself in his entire life has never been so weak and so vulnerable and so at risk as this. This is a very dangerous moment. But what's even more troubling about all of that is what it says in verse one, Jesus was led up by, say the next two words, the spirit. 
The Spirit led him there. The Spirit put him in harm's way. The words uh, led up, uh, one word of the Greek means to be impelled, forced, sent with forced. Here's a more modern word, pushed. Not a soft push, a hard push. The kind of hard push that makes you stagger and stumble to catch your balance push. Now this is a fascinating moment because it makes us ask a serious question. Wait, 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 wait. It's Satan's job to tempt, but I thought we were to pray. Jesus taught us this in Matthew 6. Lead us not into temptation. I thought he didn't have anything to do with our temptations. James would later say, let no one say when he's being tempted, I'm being tempted by God because God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. So how is it now that Jesus, in his weakened state, is being taken by the Spirit, weakened further, right into an unlimited, unrestrained assault by all that hell could unleash. Well, the word tempt in its truest root form means to test. God is testing his son. Not like Satan wants to test Jesus so that he could get something in his holy soul to buckle and to collapse. Satan wants to un-God God. Satan wants to collapse the Trinity. Satan wants to undo the salvation plan to rescue sinners like you and me. And if he succeeds, everything that he's been bent on for all the ages is finally realized in this moment. But that's not God's purpose. God's purpose is to take Jesus out to show how undefeatable he really is as our king, in whom we can place our trust with confidence. It's like when the engineers were building the Union Pacific Railroad. They would take the trains and they would put along these bridges that they had built and they would reinforce the bridges with the trusses and they would take the trains and sometimes double and in some cases triple the load that they had to bear and they would leave the train on the bridge for days. And when asked, are you trying to break the bridge? The engineers simply said, no, we're trying to prove that the bridge will hold. Well, ladies and gentlemen, the Savior will hold. He holds in this passage. He overcomes. And not only does he provide an example for us to follow, that same Christ lives in you. And if he overcame, you can overcome. Amen? Amen. But as he comes at the Savior, listen, he comes with his most effective strategies. He comes to try to undo, which really feels kind of stupid that he would assault the Savior. But maybe I can say it like this. I I need the buffest guy in the room. Um, Who's the buffest guy in the room? Usually buff guys are bald. Are you the, you the buff, you buffest guy in the room? I believe you. But I see a guy in the back with a hat on right there. He's kind of hiding. His muscles are in the light back there. Can I, right there. Are you buff? Can you stand up? No, not, not him. You. Stand up right there. Like, okay, Popeye, come here. Um, so I just said Popeye to some big buff guy. Um, so you're in the sermon now, and um, so I'm going to need some help. So I want to I kind of illustrate what it is that ha- happens. Yeah, come on up. All the way. Yeah, you're fully in this one. Uh, you'll be on the live stream. You'll be on the recording. It's all, it's all there. Like, call your... I'm bald. You are bald. Look at that. No, take it off. It's better. It's better. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, totally, right? Everybody in favor of hats off, right? Hats off in church, bald guy? Absolutely. So, all right. So, now, what's your name? Jeremy. Jeremy? Yep. Thank you. Ow. <laughs> okay. Wow. He's... Um, so, um, so, I want you... Uh, this is our humanity, Okay. Um, this is like Jesus' humanity, frail. 
Um, I would like you, Paul, you said your name is? Jeremy. Where'd I get Paul from? That's Paul right there. Okay, so Jeremy, Jeremy, would you please, as much as you're able to try, would you bend that paper towel roll, please? Would you try? Okay, well done. Can we thank Jeremy for... Okay, okay, so that's exactly what happens when you and I go up against Satan, right? We're nothing. We collapse so easy. We fold so easy. Is that all you can do, bro? Can you do worse than that? Don't rip it. Just, but yeah, okay, that's, that's really good. Okay, so, so now here is Jesus' weakened humanity. Frail, not broken, sinless, and, um, and here comes the indestructible quality of his perfect life and his perfect righteousness from a perfect deity. Okay, uh, Jeremy, do your worst, bro. Go ahead. <laughs> what I'd like you to do is bend this paper towel, please. Okay, go ahead, go ahead. Paper towel roll. Come on. Where are you at, man? Come on, bring your worst. Is that all you got? Come on, girly man. Let's do this. <laughs> all right. Maybe you need your hat back and to go yeah, sit back down. Right. So, no. Thanks, hey, brother. can we thank Jeremy for coming up here and being in the sermon? Thanks, man. Christ will hold. Satan's like, I'm coming for this. And Jesus says, bring your worst. And he stands at the end of our story, undefeated, and he offers that to you and me. So let's go get it. Can we get some? Let's get unstuck this morning. There are lies that Satan will come at us with that we are going to expose and unmask. And these are lies we must refuse to believe if we hope to overcome temptation. Because see, everything that Satan has, has worked. I mean, do you understand that? What he has, has worked with the demons, a third of them that fell. It's worked in his own heart. He believed his own lies when he fell from heaven. For millennia, he has been undoing believers and holding in slavery unbelievers by these lies. And now he will come and try them on the Son of God and they will, well, the Greek word is not work, right? They won't work, but, but we need to know these, we need to unmask these, we need to see these for what they are, and we need to shine truth in them so that we can get unstuck. Here's the first one. Lie number one. Here's, here's what Satan wants you to think. I need to feel that. You are meant by his satanic strategy to think, I need to feel that. Look at verse, look at verse three. Now remember, we'll pick it up in verse two. After fasting, f- how long? 40 days and 40 what? Nights. He was hungry. You think? I can't imagine the emaciated condition. Now, what is Jesus doing? Why is he fasting? No, he is preparing for temptation. He knows what's coming. He knows what onslaught will unleash on him, and so he is letting go of everything else he might otherwise depend on to get himself laser-focused on this moment. And yet, being laser-focused and prepared has left him in a state of total weakness. And it's in that moment, not only as soon as God's plan has started, that Satan's plan comes, but the moment of vulnerability, he became hungry and the tempter came. The tempter comes when Jesus is feeling a physical pull, watch this, for relief. He wants badly relief. And Satan has a way of offering him relief that he thinks Jesus will receive. And he says to him here, verse three, and the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, what do you mean if you're the son of God? Does he not know he's the son of God? Well, he's trying to plant doubt for sure because that's always how he begins. He always begins with a question and he always begins with a sinful kind of logic. And it's not like, I kind of recognize you, 
I mean, you kind of look like that one in heaven I saw that the angels worshipped, but now you're kind of like skin and bones. I don't really recognize you. Are you the son of God? That's not what he's doing. What he's saying is, since you are the son of God, and more specifically, he's calling back what Jesus just heard the Father say at his baptism. So you're the beloved son. Well, if you are, what are you doing out here? Look at you. Weak, frail, left alone, isolated, betrayed, maybe. Jesus, you were told that you're the beloved son, but if you're really the beloved son, then why are you starving in the wilderness? Is this how God treats his beloved? I don't know if I'd want to be beloved. If that's how he treats beloved. Think about apostate Israel as they wandered in the wilderness. God fed them every single day. How many days? Like a month and 10 days you've been out here and nothing from God? Think about your life. You were born, you came into the world, and you lied in a feeding trough. You were chased out of your own hometown by people that wanted to kill you. You've lived your life for 30 years in obscurity. God says, you're my beloved son, and then his spirit pushes you out here into the wasteland. You're going to starve to death. And if you die, what of God's plan then? Here's what you need to do. Your father's not coming for you. Ravens aren't going to drop bread for you. There's no such thing as Uber Eats yet. <laughs> you need to take action into your own hands. You need to take these stones and turn them into bread. Is it wrong to eat? Answer? It's not wrong to eat. Is it wrong for Jesus to use miraculous power to create food? It's not. He's going to do that on multiple occasions in his ministry. He'll feed 5,000 men plus women and children, and then 4,000 men plus women and children in his ministry. It's not wrong for him to use his supernatural miraculous power to do what he in his humanity was able and made to do. <laughs> and by the way, if you have been to Israel, the rocks aren't like big volleyball size, you know, rocks, boulders. They're more like pita bread size with like butter dripping down the side. <laughs> and he's painting a picture, or trying to, in Jesus' imagination of what he will feel if he seeks after and gets the relief that he's capable of providing for himself. So that Jesus would think, I need to feel that. Don't listen to your father Look at your circumstances. Your father has fed you a line. Everything you see is true. And all that craving inside of you is meant to prove to you that what I'm saying is what you must do. Relieve yourself. Nobody else will. Or you could die. The temptation was to doubt his father's care. The temptation was to believe that he had to take an action into his own hands. The temptation was to cave into the lust of the flesh. John in 1 John 2 says there's three kinds of temptations. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. This is the lust of the flesh. Gratify a craving in a sinful way. Just step outside the will of God. What else could you do? 
Well, what was Jesus' answer? Well, verse 4, he answered, it is written. I love that. It's perfect tense in the Greek language. It stands written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes out of the mouth of God. That's right out of Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. You want to talk about apostate Israel in the wilderness and God fed them every day? Yeah, exactly. He fed them every single day so that he would make them understand that man doesn't live by bread alone, but every word that comes out of the mouth of God. What you need is not some sort of physical relief from those visceral urges inside of you. You need truth. You need God's word truth. And all the things that you have been given to depend on, you need again and again and again. And the thing you don't need again and again and again because it fades away is the word of God. It stands written. That's what holds me. And so if you find yourself in a place where you're going, everything in me wants to cave to the impulses to feel, fill in the blank ransack your Bible, open it up, find the precious promises in God's word that show how he satisfies infinitely more than that one thing that Satan offers ever could. That was his answer. His answer to Satan's temptation is this, God's word is enough for me. God's word is enough for me even when I can't feel it. Even when I can't feel it. Even, look, though my needs are left unmet, Jesus will stay hungry. And his needs in this moment, I assure you, are greater than you and I have ever felt. But he's saying, greater than that are the truths that hold me. They outlast all of these urges and all of these desires that I so badly want to gratify. That's why Job said in Job 23, 12, I have not departed from the command of his lips because I have treasured his word more than my necessary food The word of God is everything to me. And that word stands written. So you don't need to feel that. You don't need to feel that. Satan will make you think you need to feel that. You don't need to feel that at all. Here's the second lie that he comes at. I want to be that. Jesus, you need to be this. Well, what's this? Look at verse five. The devil, it says then, so this is attempt number two, took him to the holy city. Where's that? That's Jerusalem. And set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, now still pulling on the, okay, so you are the son of God, right? If you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. So do you see what's happening here? He's like, oh, okay. God cares about you. You live on God's word. You're going to take the full weight of your trust and you're going to put it on the scripture? Well, how about this scripture? Psalm 91. If you were to fall, God would dispatch his angels and they'd catch you so that you wouldn't strike your foot against a stone. So so if you really believe that God loves you, let's go to the pinnacle of the temple. Now, I've been to this place too. It's 450 foot 452 feet tall. I've been to the base of this place. 452 feet high. Josephus tells us, the great historian, that if you were to get to the edge and look over, there were many who were uh, unable to hold their equilibrium. The dizziness forced them to fall. Became grease spots. So this this was a dizzying height. And he stands there and he's like, Jesus, if you believe the scriptures, jump. If, if the Father really loves you, well, then the Father will hold fast to those promises that he 
makes. Aren't you into all the Bible? Hint used out of context. If you jump, think about this, Jesus. You do this swan dive off the pinnacle of the temple. And God sends angels from heaven. They catch you. You have this incredibly soft landing in front of the multitudes and you can just do your little, you know, whatever. And everybody below would follow you. Think about the crowds that would come. Think about the following that you would have. Did you know this historically? That many who claimed to be Messiah came to this very spot and jumped hoping that that moment would be realized for them and that they would prove to the world that they're a Messiah? They had a very short career, by the way. Hey, Jesus, you could erase all doubt. You could prove to everyone that you are who you say you are. You can be what you were made for. You could obey the scriptures. The scriptures would be fulfilled in your midst. The angels would be on display attending you and affirming you. And you could say to the masses whatever you wanted to say and they'll be eating out of your hands. Except what Jesus would say later in Matthew 12, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. The fickle crowds below, oh, they loved the slideshow. They loved the pop, sizzle, and fizz. They loved the miracles, but their hearts were far. That's not the way you reach hearts. Nor is it our prerogative to force God to prove his love for us. It's God's prerogative to test our love for him. That's why Jesus' answer, look back at the text in verse 7, he says, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the... Yeah, we're not testing God. And we're not going to go outside of God's will to concoct some kind of plan that will elevate me on the praises of fickle people. I'm not going to veer from what God wants me to do because you think his character isn't trustworthy and reliable. No, my God is good. My God speaks truth. If he says I'm the beloved son, I am the beloved son. And his character to me is unfailing. Though I can't see it. I don't need to see it. He said it. That settles it. So Satan, your attempt to get me to force God to prove something I already know and believe to be true doesn't work. I'm not going to step outside of his plan because I want, what, friends? Twitter followers? Because I want to feel like I belong with them? Because I want to be promoted faster? What, what's the benefit? There is no benefit. You've lost. But isn't that tempting Isn't it tempting for us to say, I want to be that? Well, when that moment comes, what Jesus models for us and gives us the power to do is to say, it's not about what we become, it's about who he is. Him exalted in our lives at the center. Well, undeterred, Satan comes back for a third wave. And we've seen the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. Here comes the lust of the eyes. Look at verse eight. We have a third lie. And the lie is, I must have that. I need to feel that. I want to be that. And now I must have that. Look at verse 8. Again, 
the devil took him, again, supernatural being, escorting the Savior to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and what? Worship me. I'll give it to you. This is the, this is the prosperity gospel in a single verse. Everything you ever wanted, everything I have, even things you didn't know you needed, I'll give it to you. And I'll give it to you, all of it. And I'll give it all to you now. And I'll give it to you without the cross. You see, that's what makes this temptation so alluring. Because you look at it and you're like, well, Satan, you're really kind of stupid. Don't you know how the thing ends? Have you never heard us sing the Hallelujah Chorus? <laughs> Revelation 5 says, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign for ever, ever and ever. ever, right? There's only one worthy to take the scroll. There's only one worthy to rule and reign over the whole universe. Satan, you're stupid. Duh, don't you know that Jesus is going to reign anyway? What, what could you possibly offer him that he won't already have? Here's the answer, a shortcut. No Gethsemane, Jesus. No sweating drops of blood. Father, remove this cup from me. Nobody ripping out your beard. No spit dripping off your face. No nails in your wrist and feet. No public shame. I'll just give it to you. And all you have to do, nobody's looking. Nobody's here. Nobody sees. It's just this. One little compromise. One little genuflect. Just down and up. I will fully relinquish control over everything and will appoint you the world ruler today. If Jesus becomes Satan's appointed world ruler, then Christ becomes the Antichrist. And the Trinity's undone. Separate from your Father. Join with me. And all I ask is all I've lusted for. No subtlety here, right? Just worship me. Since the moment I left. How does Jesus answer? Verse 10. Be gone, Satan. What strength. For it stands written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. There's only one going to receive worship and it's my father. 
You're done. It's over. And by the way, when you look at Revelation 5, and do you know why Jesus is the one who alone is able to take the scroll? Do you know what it says? It says, you alone are worthy to take the scroll because you were slain. And you did purchase for God men with your blood from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. And you will rule over them forever and ever. The reason that Jesus is able to do this is because he must go to the cross. He will go to the cross. God's plan is perfect for him and it will cost him everything, but that is the point. He has come to rescue sinners. He has come to die in our place to endure God's wrath meant for us. He has come to conquer over death himself by rising again and offering forgiveness and life to all who put their faith in him. And everyone who has put their faith in him has the living Christ within them through his spirit until the day they see him face to face. And he will reign over us forever and ever. It's supposed to be this way. And, and there's no shortcut that interests the Savior. He goes to the cross for the joy set before him, Hebrews says. Because he wants to secure us to bring us to this place. So can I just say to you, you're not stuck. You're not stuck. You say, Pastor, let me just tell you something. Um, I like your nice little illustration with, the, uh, with you know, Jeremy bending the thing, and yeah, that's really great. But um, can I just tell you, I'm not, I'm not like bent. This is, this is me. I'm unraveled, okay? I'm undone. And you know what my marriage is? It's, it's this. You know what happens to me every day when I come home from the job I hate and I'm exhausted? This. You know how often I give in to that thing that I think gives me relief and I might get a couple of weeks away from it, but then right there it is waiting for me again and I feel guilty, but you know what I am? I'm this. And you want to see my marriage? It's this. And you want to see my finances? It's this. And you want to see my parenting? It's this. So, so that's really nice that you would tell me all these kinds of things. And so I would love to be this, but I'm this. Well, what Jesus is saying then, loved ones, as the devil leaves and angels come and care for him and he goes to that cross and he endures God's wrath, he's saying, wrap your life again around like this. The hymn writer who said, soldiers of Christ, arise and put your armor on. Strong in the strength that God supplies through his eternal son, strong in the Lord of hosts and in his mighty power, the one who in Jesus trusts is more than conqueror. You are not stuck. The savior who overcame is alive and he is in this place. And if you're in Christ, he's in you. And if you're not in Christ, don't leave today. Don't leave this broken shell to the devil and what he would do. Reach forward for a greater vision of what God could accomplish in your life through his son. We're going to sing a song, Be Thou My Vision, Lord of my heart. I want you and you only to be all to me. And so I'm, I'm not saying I'm stuck and I'm not going to take 30 steps today. I'm just going to take what is the one step that is necessary for me to intertwine myself again with the Savior who overcame. He lives in you. 
He loves you. Let's stand together and let's sing this song as a response. And I promise back to him that we will let the life of Christ pervade us.